invite you to open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just two main points, if you're keeping notes this morning, we're just looking at the question and then the protest, and uh, then we'll get to the application. So uh, note, if you're taking notes this morning, that hopefully will help you. As uh, It's a very tight story, um, very gripping story, and uh, we're going we're gonna to note that this morning. Let's give our attention. If you just remember uh, Luke chapter 9 and 10, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple. Someone who actually follows Jesus, and, and we've heard, seen so many lessons, and this morning we have another lesson of what it looks like, what it means to follow Jesus. Let's begin at verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up. This, this would be a, a, not just a lawyer the way we think of a lawyer, but a teacher of the, uh, the law, the Torah. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. God in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this scripture which is inspired. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And that Jesus' words are just as real this morning as they were when he uttered them 2,000 years ago. And so we ask, Lord, once again, your miraculous blessing that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond in Jesus' name, amen. This morning what we have in Luke chapter 10 is a, a fascinating insight into a day in the life of Jesus. Maybe you've seen various documentaries uh, and uh, sort of an insight into what it would be like to live a day in the life of, of such a person, whoever uh, that might be. But the, the story this morning has that feel to it. It has the sense of an eyewitness account. There's an immediacy and authenticity to the, the report. Uh, you can almost feel the press and the heat of the crowd under the warm Palestinian sun as people gathered around Jesus as at this stage of the ministry they always are. And there's drama in the dialogue here between Jesus and this expert in the Jewish law. 
The words are terse. Uh, the questions are loaded. You'll, you'll see that. The parable is shocking, and the application is relentless. Go and do likewise as Jesus looks directly at this man. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan is a very popular story, and it's popular in part because it is appealing to a wide variety of people for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, maybe uh, you've heard of the, the Jesus Seminar. These are uh, people who are supposed Bible scholars who sit down in a room and they vote on which parts of the Bible actually happened and which parts didn't, specifically when it comes to Jesus. And so they'll vote on, uh, did Jesus actually say or do this, yes or no? What do you think? And, um, well, not surprisingly, the Good Samaritan passes. Uh, they think that pro Jesus probably said this. Anything that's really offensive, uh, Jesus probably didn't say, it seems. But uh, this, is an, uh, this is a nice story that found favor with these, uh, these scholars. Why is it so appealing? Well, it's appealing, again, for a, a variety of reasons. If uh, you like to think of Jesus as a social radical, someone who just sort of came to upset the religious conventions of his day, you like this story because the priest and the Levite are the bad guys and the Samaritan's the good guy. If you're passionate about social justice and racial relationships, it's a compelling story because uh, the Samaritan reaches across ethnic, racial, and religious lines in order to help a, a needy traveler. If you have a more of a sentimental bent and believe that all the world needs now is love, sweet love, uh, then it's appealing because the moral seems very clear. If we would just be like this guy, if people would just care for each other, show compassion for each other, the world could be made radically different. And so many see this parable as a, as a a prime example of the essence of Jesus' ethical teaching, be nice to people. It's a great story if you uh, feel like that's what Jesus is about. I hope you have the sense that none of these uses, and they are uses of the text, really do justice to the text. This can't be just a story about how we're supposed to be nice people. It's not a, mo a morality tale. It's not an Aesop's fable that has a moral principle attached. It's a parable of the kingdom. And Jesus' parables are intended then for kingdom purposes. They do two things. They blind the eyes of some and they open the eyes of others. They, in a sense, present the reality of the kingdom to its hearers so that people are left now not just with a moral lesson but a moral obligation. The king is present. What will you do with that? How will you respond to his kingly reign and his commands? So it's to co-opt, you see, this story then for a lesser purpose, to co-opt it to, uh, just to make it a moral lesson on how we can better ourselves or the world is to do a great injustice to it, and it's to fail to see the king. This is a story about what kingdom righteousness looks like from God's perspective and how people act when they come under the lordship of the king. And so let's look at the story then this morning as Jesus speaks to us, the king, through his word. First then, the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you remember, Jesus has just rejoiced 
that the Father has hidden the things of the kingdom from the wise of the world and has revealed the things of the kingdom to the little children of the world. Well, here is the wise of the world that Jesus has in mind. This is the, the wise uh, in action, an expert in the Jewish law, someone who has studied it, who believes he has the, the answers. Notice he's not there to learn from Jesus. He's not there to hear what Jesus uh, has to say or to see things as Jesus saw them. He's there to trap Jesus. To publicly examine Jesus according to his orthodoxy and his authenticity. Most likely seeing himself as doing a public service for the community. I mean, here you have all these uneducated people that just seem to love Jesus. They throng around him. But they don't know the law as he does. They haven't had the, the benefit of, of being learned, being wise, being well-trained in the Torah and schooled in rabbinical writings. And so this man probably sees himself as doing a favor to the uneducated masses. He will help them see what Jesus is really about. His question is a great question. It's really the quintessential question of religion. What must I do to be saved? Every religion in the world is asking that question. It's the question that the rich young ruler, if you remember, came and asked Jesus. It's the most significant question you will ever ask in your life. We ask some significant questions in life. What's the cure for this? Will you marry me? Are we there yet? <coughs> no, significant questions. <coughs> What must I do to be saved? Is there a single question more essential than that question? For your eternal destiny is on, is on the line. That's the question he asks. But the way he asks it is completely wrong. You see, it's not well meant. The lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That is not the right way to ask the question. It's utterly the wrong motive. He's not asking it authentically. He's not asking it uh, because he thinks he needs to be saved. He doesn't think he needs to be saved. <clears throat> he's convinced he is saved. He's concerned about Jesus. So you see, he's not asking it the way that the men in Acts chapter 2 ask it. When Peter preaches his convicting sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he uh, tells them, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. He's king, he's reigning, and you put him to death. And the Jewish men there in that audience were struck to the heart, convicted of their sin. And they came to Peter asking, what then must we do to be saved? They sensed that they deserved judgment. And they wanted to be rescued. That's how you ask the question. Not this. This is petty. This is, this is blasphemy almost. You see, this is playing games, not only with Jesus, but your own soul. Just, I mean, just try to get your mind around what's happening here. Here is a sinful man in front of the Lord of life, the, the one who knit him together in his mother's womb. This is the one being in all of the universe who can rescue this man from the fate of everlasting death and judgment. He's standing right in front of Jesus and he asks the very best question he could have asked of Jesus. But when he asked his question, he slammed the door on his own salvation 
because he doesn't ask it correctly. He doesn't ask it because he wants to know how to live. He asks because he wants to trap Jesus. Can you imagine the irony of this? The horrible, the horrible irony? I, I dearly hope this man repented at a later stage in his life. I cannot imagine spending eternity as this man realizing that on this day he had a conversation with the one who held the keys to life and death. And on this day he asked the most significant question he could have asked and yet he was lost for all eternity because he didn't mean it. There will be many people who go to church who don't mean business with God. And will be in hell realizing that they were in front of the Lord of life and <clears throat> they were dealing with the most significant issues of life. They talked about it, heard about it, thought about it. But not the right way. I hope you just sense the weightiness of this discussion. Do you sense the tragedy that is about to unfold as a man created in the image of God stands in front of his creator and never sees him? The question is, Specific. The tense of the verb is aorist. So, in other words, the man is asking, What is the thing that having been done, the thing that you could sort of put a box around it, you could take it and you could hold it up? What is that thing which, having been accomplished, the thing that I might do that would inherit eternal life? You see, this is the essence of the law principle, the idea that, that the way to gain eternal life is by doing things. And, and so he's asking, what is the thing that must be done, the thing that having been accomplished would inherit eternal life? Now, he knew the answer to the question, didn't he? At least he thought he knew the answer to the question. He'd been taught that the law of God was the thing that having been done, that if you could put that... Uh, obedience in a box, then that would be the thing that you would present to God as the ground for everlasting life. The law says, do this and live. Do this and live. And as an expert of the law, he's convinced then that the, the eternal life is gained by obedience to the law, by ceremonial purity, and by moral effort and perfection. So why is he asking? If he knows the answer, why is he asking? Because he doesn't think Jesus knows the answer. You see, he saw Jesus hanging around unclean people, thereby making himself morally unclean. Jesus even ate with tax collectors. Jesus performed some of his miracles on the Sabbath. In fact, he seemed to do that with frightening regularity. Jesus seems unconcerned about Torah, about the law of Moses, and, and so this man is just going to try to bring these things to light to help the people realize that Jesus is not a true prophet. Jesus can't bring you life because Jesus doesn't know the way. So the stage is set. And the contest is on. The lawyer versus the Savior. A sinful, self-righteous man versus the spotless, eternal Son of God. You may have the sense that this isn't going to end well. One of the wonderful things that you find in the Gospels is that this happens sort of on a recurring basis. People come and they attempt to expose Jesus and they inevitably find that the, the spotlight of divine truth somehow gets flipped right over and exposes them. And it wasn't just that Jesus was clever. The, the opponents of Jesus would walk away with the sense that somehow... Jesus seemed to know what was in their deepest heart. 
even knew their secret sins and their idols. So when Jesus says to the rich young man who came to him and said, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, keep the law. He says, I've been keeping the law my whole life. Jesus says, ah, yes. Well, then there's just one more thing. That's it. Just sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll be perfect. (laughs) Wide open. And he walks away sad because he had great wealth. And so that's the experience that this man is going to have as well. He comes attempting to expose Jesus, never imagining that Jesus is going to take the very law that he's so familiar with, so comfortable with, and Jesus is going to turn the spotlight of that law around and expose him. And so Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Sort of saying, you're the expert here. Shouldn't you know these things? You see, Jesus knows it's a trap, and by, and by responding this way, he's letting everybody in the room know, or everybody in the crowd know, that he knows it's a trap. The man maybe is uh, a bit taken aback, but he rises to the challenge and answers the question. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus brilliantly responds, yeah, do that, just do that. Do this and you will live. Next. Anyone else? So he's done. As far as he's concerned. But but the lawyer, you see, it can't be over yet. He had come here to trap Jesus and Jesus isn't trapped yet. In fact, it felt an awful lot like Jesus was trapping him. There was something about the way that Jesus responded, you see, that was very convicting and upsetting. The man had asked the question in the errorist tense, what is the thing having been done that will inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds in the present tense, the tense of ongoing, continuing activity. In other words, what Jesus is saying, and everyone would have understood this, that the thing that inherits eternal life is unfailing, uncompromising, unfaltering, all your life long, absolute heart, soul, mind, love for God and for neighbor, all the time, continually, continually, without ever taking a break, without ever failing, just do that and, and you'll live. Well, who in the world can do that? The expert in the law, you see, realizes he's been exposed as a lawbreaker. Nobody does that. I mean, even the most ardent Pharisee wouldn't have the audacity to say that he had kept the law with that kind of perfection. And so, notice what we read. Desiring to justify himself, he said. I mean, do you see how the roles have changed? The first question is motivated by an attempt to expose Jesus. The second question is motivated by an attempt to cover himself. He's been exposed as naked in front of the law of God, and he's the expert, the teacher, and so he needs to justify himself because the law has convicted him. And so he protests Who is my neighbor? You just got to shake your head. The man should have stopped when he had a chance. Should have realized he'd been beaten. Should have gone home to reconsider the state of his soul and how he thought about God and righteousness. But his pride would not let him. In the span of 10 seconds, Jesus had completely reversed the table and exposed him as a sinner right there in front of everyone. And sinners do not like to be exposed. 
And so this man, like every sinner, right, seeks to justify himself. You, people can say the most amazing things, confessing maybe the awful things, and yet if, if there's pride still left there, they'll find some way, or they'll attempt to find a way just to, to make it not quite as bad as it might have sounded initially. So this, he's, he's going to try to justify himself. Remember, he's a lawyer. He likes to argue. He has confidence in his expertise. He, uh, he is an expert in the law of Moses, and, and the experts knew that there were certain loopholes in the law of Moses. There, were, there was a little bit of wiggle room or just a way of understanding it that made it more palatable, more doable. For instance, this, this thing about loving your neighbor. Obviously, uh, that's what Moses said. It's what God required. But, but what does it mean like in practice? Well, the details. I mean, does it, does it mean you have to love everyone the way you love yourself? Well, that couldn't be right. I mean, what about half-breed Samaritans and Gentile dogs? I mean, didn't David say in the Psalms that I count God's enemies as mine? Do I not hate those who hate thee? That's what he says. So the lawyers would debate, who are we allowed to hate in a righteous way? Well, Gentiles, certainly. I mean, they were just awful. Idol makers and worshipers, uh, enemies of God's people, you could freely hate them. In fact, righteously hate them. And Samaritans, without a doubt, they were just a mess. Half-breed Jews worshipped the wrong place, um, didn't keep the laws they should. You, it would be right and righteous to hate them. And notorious Jewish men who are sinners, tax collectors and the like, you could not possibly righteously love them. And then there were, of course, the non-serious Jews, decent people, but just not serious about the things of God. You, maybe you wouldn't hate them, but they didn't really deserve wholehearted love the way you loved yourself. So at the end of the day, you see, the experts of the law had determined that the only people that God really intended you to love as you loved yourself were people like yourself. You know, the good, serious, righteous people. So when the expert asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, he's not, acting, he's not asking out of ignorance, he's, act, he's asking out of a conviction. And in that, challenging Jesus' understanding. Here's the problem with Jesus. Jesus acted like it was perfectly appropriate to love unrighteous people, immoral people. I mean, his neighborhood group was a scandal. He seemed perfectly happy to associate with and show kindness to known sinners. Well, who is my neighbor? He self-righteously asks. And so Jesus told a story. And you know it. A man was going down from Jerusalem, probably had worshipped there. He was traveling to Jericho, a route that was known to be dangerous. And on the way, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, left him for dead. A priest, by chance, happened to be going down the same road and saw the man lying there, clearly in need, and yet he passed by on the other side. And a Levite also came along and did likewise. There's a lot of discussion among the scholars about why would these guys just leave this man laying in the road? What was their motive? And, well, it could be lots of things, right? They were busy. They had an appointment to keep. 
That's one that we often use. They didn't know who the man was. Maybe he was unclean. They would be uns- they would be risk ceremonial uncleanliness if they if they dealt with him. Uh, maybe it was just fear. The robbers might still be close by. Who knows? And so they just hustle on past. But notice, you see, Jesus doesn't tell us why they didn't stop, why they passed by, because the reason doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. When you leave a fellow human being lying in the middle of the road to die, what reason do you think you're going to muster before the king of kings to justify that choice? I was busy. I was afraid. I mean, is there anything you're going to muster up that, that would make God say, oh, oh, yeah, I understand. Good choice. You see, the, these men are indicted by the law of God, by God himself, the moment they moved a foot past that person. They're found wanting by the law, missing the mark, refusing to love their neighbor. And then Jesus brings the clincher. But a Samaritan, and you can see eyes fly open, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The most important words in the story. He had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and poured on oil and wine, setting him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he set out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, the debate, of course, is why does Jesus use a Samaritan? What purpose does it serve? Because it would have been a shock to have the Samaritan be the good guy in the story. You see, the Jews were used to stories like this that, um, and, and jokes. There were three guys, priest, Levite, and Joe the plumber. That, that's the idea. It's, it's, it's the priest, the Levite, and the ordinary good Jewish man. And often the joke would be then that the Levites and the priests got their head in the clouds and the ordinary man sort of comes in and saves the day. They're not expecting Jesus to introduce a Samaritan. So why does he do it? Well, it is not a rebellious attempt to overturn religious convention. He's not just trying to stick it to the man religiously. It is neither a lesson on racial reconciliation. That's not why Jesus is using this. It is not a moral lesson on the importance of being nice. It is a kingdom lesson on the nature of righteousness. The man thinks that he's righteous because he's a Jewish man who has devoted his life to the Torah, to knowing it, studying it, teaching it. So in his mind, he inhibits the category of righteous living, and in his mind, and so many of the crowd around, the Samaritan, I mean, the Samaritan is so far from the truth, from the law of Moses, he can't even see the category of righteousness from where he lives. He, the two just don't go together. So, so why does Jesus insert the Samaritan in the story? It's not because Jesus agrees with the Samaritans. When he talked to the woman at the well, you remember in John chapter 4, and, and she had this discussion where you Jews say we should worship there in Jerusalem, and we, we worship on this mountain. What's the right mountain? And Jesus said, well, the Jews have it right. You, you people worship what you don't know. You don't, you're wrong. It's not that he agrees with their theological position, 
But what he's doing, you see, by inserting the Samaritan is two things. He's devastating the lawyer man's definition of righteousness, the, the common Jewish understanding of what righteousness is about. The priests and the Levites were, you see, sort of the epitome of Jewish law-keeping righteousness. But the priest and the Levite, both colleagues of this man, fail the righteousness exam. In spite of what they know, in spite of what they profess to believe, in the dark of night, on a lonely country road, when no one was watching and where no one could see, they failed to keep the law. They failed abysmally. They failed in a way that any pagan in the world would look at it and and see failure. And Jesus, you see, forces the lawyer to admit it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, the one who showed him mercy. Man, that had to hurt. Notice, he he couldn't even say the word, could he? How would you have responded? I would have said, well, the Samaritan. Well, there's no way in the world this guy's going to say the Samaritan. That, that cost too much. He could only say the one who had mercy, but in so doing, he makes the point of Christ exactly. Kingdom righteousness looks like mercy. So that's the second reason for the Samaritan. He devastates a religious idea of morality, that things that you can do in a box And he reveals the nature, secondly, of genuine kingdom righteousness. The Samaritan had compassion. I want you to notice quickly two things about this compassion. It is unmerited, and it is gladly, willingly given. First of all, it's unmerited. The mercy of the Samaritan is remarkable because everyone hearing this story understands it's highly unusual and thoroughly unmerited. It's contrary to human expectations. Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. When Jesus was passing through, just again a few verses ago, on his way to Jerusalem, they came to a Samaritan town, and the Samaritan town wanted nothing to do with him. So James and John say, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? Let's just do the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Samaritans hate Jews. And yet, here's this man doing this amazing thing for a Jewish man he doesn't even know. You see, of the three people walking by, humanly speaking, the Samaritan is the only one with good reasons to do nothing. He doesn't owe this Jewish man anything, and, and humanly speaking, it's not his problem. See, kingdom mercy is unexpected and magnificent because it's contrary to human norms. It's contrary to worldly standards. It's mercy for undeserving people. It's, it's love for enemies. And it's, it's unmerited and willingly, gladly given. Notice the fullness of the Samaritan's concern. He did everything possible. What more could he have done for this man? Is there anything, as you you look at what the Samaritan does, is there any point that you would say, well, yeah, but notice he cut a corner here. Didn't really take the full step there. There's nothing here that you could fault him for. There's no sense of a begrudging act. It's almost like he loves this guy. He wouldn't have done more for his own child. 
You see, it's, it's like he loved to show mercy, which is exactly what kingdom righteousness looks like. So back in uh, Micah chapter 6, the prophet says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy. Not to do mercy, to love mercy, to delight in mercy, to cherish showing compassion to people in need. And not just the needy throng out there, the nameless needy, but the people with names and needs right in front of you. And they're there. We just miss them. The elderly person who simply needs someone to pay attention and let them know that they still matter. The sensitive, struggling young person who needs a genuine friend, they're right there. The unemployed person who needs a hand and an encouraging word. A young mother who needs or could use desperately some help. A widow who, who needs someone just to spend time with, someone who would understand, someone she could cry with. A sexually struggling sinner who needs someone who's willing to be honest and give loving gospel counsel and gospel ministry and love. Maybe it's someone who's offended you and, and, and you don't know how to fix it and there's this thing there and you, they, need, they need the compassion of forgiveness. They need the gift of your forgiveness. Whatever it might be, you see, these people are all around. Your life is flush with these people. Some of them are sitting right next to you. And you'll know it's a need when it feels like a sacrifice to love them. You'll know it's compassion when it will feel like giving up things. Giving up your time, your space, your money, your emotional energy. When it feels at times overwhelming when it seems inconvenient, mercy, friends, is always inconvenient. Genuine compassion is inconvenient. But it's what righteousness looks like. It's what righteousness looks like. And so Jesus applies it, then finally, go and do likewise. Now, we're faced again with the temptation to avoid the clear meaning of that. <laughs> um, he means what he says to this man. Go and do likewise. There's no avoiding that he says it to us as well. Not if we, not if we want to live. You, you can't just say that was a nice story. You can't say, well, that was an interesting sermon. You, can, you can't walk away. The king is talking. The king is talking. And he's talking to you this morning. And the king commands you, go and do likewise. So how do, how do we deal with this? Well, first of all, understand he's not giving us a stairway to heaven, right? Mercy isn't the thing which, having been done, gains everlasting life, merits everlasting life. You're not going to be able to come before God on the last day and say, here's my, mer my mercy box. I hope it's sufficient. It won't be. But... If you come to heaven and there's no mercy evident in your life, you're lost. You're lost. Whoever says he loves God and does not love his brother is a liar. 1 John 4, verse 8. James says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Jesus commands Matthew 9.13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He doesn't need all your religious activity. Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, and there won't be excuses. I, I was reading an article by Carl Truman this past, I think it was just this week or last week, and Carl referenced some movie I've never seen, and I don't remember the name, so don't come and ask me. But, it, but the, the illustration struck me where Carl was talking about in this movie, a, a priest is confronted by a child that was molested as a young child, and, and this priest had known about it. And this man, had, um, this man had shot the priest's dog. And so there's this gripping scene where the, where the man says to the priest, did you cry when you're when your dog died? And the priest said, yeah. I mean, it was my dog. And then the man said, I've got one question for you. Did, you. did you cry the same way when I was molested and you knew about it? Silence. Just silence. See, the truth has a way of, of outing us we cry about lots of things in life. We are concerned about lots of things in life. Are we concerned about people? Generally, the people in front of us, does that weigh on us? Do we, do we delight in compassion and mercy? Do, are we rich in mercy and compassion like our Father is? So, you see, because it's, it's a non-negotiable. I, I don't know how to say that more strongly. If you come before the living God and there is no evidence of compassion or mercy in your life, you've not experienced the grace of God that saves you. So how do we move? How do we change? How do we grow? Let me wrap with this. First, confess the truth. Confess your sin. Just, just wake up. Acknowledge your self-righteous heart. Acknowledge your calloused heart. Acknowledge your worldly heart that you get so wrapped up in the things that you own and the things that you're doing and the things that relate just to you that you simply do not see the needs, the absolute actual needs of people right in front of you. Confess it as sin. You are not like God in that. Confess it as sin. You, confession and repentance is the essential first step. And friends, there is so much in this world, and maybe that's one of the things that keeps us... How are you going to answer to all the needs of this world? Well, friend, God has not asked you to answer to all the needs in this world. He's asked you to answer to the ones right in front of you. And to delight, you see, in that. How's that going to happen? Well, you must then receive, secondly, the mercy of God in the grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, the, the, the essential key to this is to realize you were the robbed one. You were the, the beaten one, the left-for-dead traveler. Sin had destroyed you, your sin. The devil had, had just robbed you blind. Left for dead. And someone came and rescued you. Someone came and showed you unmerited, unbelievable mercy. The one that you had hated, the one that you had reviled against in your sin, that one came where you were, took you up, carried you to safety, bound your wounds, and paid the price for your salvation at the cost of his own life and his own blood. And he did it because he wanted to. He wanted to full of compassion. He didn't owe you anything. 
You had reviled against him, but this one loved you, and he gave himself up for you, even bearing the wrath of God for you in order to give you that, free, that beautiful gift of everlasting life. That's the gospel. Do you believe that this morning? Have you received that this morning? Have you confessed your sin? Have you cast yourself to, on the mercy of, of this one who delights to show mercy? Because if you have, you see, then as, as those who've received such an incredible gift, you are now set free. If anyone be in Christ, he is free indeed. You've been set free from the bondage to just yourself and your selfish interest, free to show mercy. Let the gospel change the way you see people. They're not just issues. They're, they're not just needs. They're people made in the image of God and opportunities for you to display the grace of God. Let the gospel of God's grace to you open your eyes to see a person, not an, not an impediment, not an obstacle to what you wanted to get done today, not a demand upon your time and, and, and on, on your financial resources, a person with needs and the gospel you see can free you to, to welcome and embrace that opportunity. Let the gospel create a heart in you that cares for people and a, and a passion to actually do something about it so your love doesn't look like a fleeting affection, but it looks like, like time and, and money and encouraging words and a, and a warm embrace. You see, by the transforming grace of God, we become lovers of God and lovers of those in need. We become good neighbors, and we start noticing people and and we experience a compassion for people, particularly people who suffer. He had compassion. Even though it was inconvenient, even though it didn't make sense, even when the other person didn't receive it, he had compassion. Friends, that's what the gospel can do for you. That's what it does do for those who believe it and receive it. The gospel makes us gospel neighbors because we were the beaten one. We were the victims robbed of our life, victims of our own folly, victims of our own sin, nothing with, but whereby to save ourselves. We were dead in the road. Religion passed by. It could not help. And then Jesus came and had mercy on us. He had mercy on you, and he changed you, and he gave you a calling now as someone who's been the beneficiary of all of his kindness, all of his grace, all of his mercy. Jesus, the king, speaks to you, and he says, go. And do likewise. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, we just want to confess how selfish we've been. Oh, God, some of us this week have given time to a pity party because it's been hard and the needs around us are deep and they're real and, and they just seem to suck the life out of us and we resent it because we had things we wanted to do and, and we resent how the needs of people around us makes us feel like we have an obligation that we really don't want to participate in. Oh, Lord, how could we, having received so much at such a cost, 
by such a Savior. Still fight to have our life and our way, our things. And so we just want to start by confessing our sin. Our ingratitude, our lack of compassion is wicked. And there's no excuse. What could we possibly say before the judge that would lessen our crimes? And yet, I thank you that Jesus comes this morning not to judge us, but to correct us and convict us and free us. I thank you that in Jesus we have a Savior, one who came and, and helped us when we could not help ourselves and when everyone else had passed by. And yet he loved us and gave his life for us. And now this Jesus is inviting us into the wonders of that life, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Jesus has freed us to be participants in the kingdom. He's freed us from the lies of consumerism and materialism and individualism. That life is found in having the things that we want. And he's freed us to find again and again that life is found in Jesus and his cause and the things that he cares about. And life is found in blessing people and having compassion on those who are in need. So Lord, I just pray that that grace would well up in this body, that we would delight to show mercy, that the heart of Jesus Christ would be evident here in this body. Oh Lord Jesus, don't leave us here in our unconcern, in our culpable callousness. But Jesus set us free and lift us up and turn us loose. All to the praise of Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen.